Okay, we've gone from nothing to something, and uh, Joe Shapcott, who's a big something. <clears throat> session, I was, I was struck how at the role of language in the face of experience which we would normally expect, a response that might be an inarticulate cry or even silence. And I think that's the paradox of elegy. Um, why, why not just cries? Why not just silences? Surely this experience is a force of inarticulacy, uh, inarticulacy in its nature. So that's the paradox of elegy, and it makes us ask, perhaps, what it is. The dictionary tells me it's a mournful, melancholic, or plaintive poem, especially a funeral song or a lament for the dead. But that leaves so much unanswered. Um, I found a better answer in the novelist Haisham Matar, who writes about a figure who is, is a version of himself whose father is missing. And he says this, everything and everyone, existence itself, has become an evocation, a possibility for resemblance. Perhaps this is what is meant by that brief and now almost archaic word, elegy. And to explore further this brief and archaic word, we have two exceptional poets, Rebecca Goss and Jane Draycott. Rebecca Goss's first book, The Anatomy of Structures, marked her out as a poet of stories, a clear, fine-tuned and engaging voice. Her second book, Her Birth, was widely acclaimed as a work in the tradition of the great English language elegies. It tells of Rebecca's daughter, Ella, who was diagnosed with a heart condition, Epstein's anomaly, and who lived only 16 months. Helen Dunmore, the poet and novelist, said about this book so aptly, the language like sea glass has been ground by a tide that might have crushed words completely. Instead, it has shaped these translucent poems. Jane Draycott's outstandingly sensuous poems create a visual feast through their imagery and an oral feast through their music. Her award-winning collections, Over, Prince Rupert's Drop, and The Night Tree, are rightly praised for their fearless beauty. And she's written the now classic translation of the elegiac 14th century dream vision poem, Pearl. And this was said about Pearl. The glamour even glitz of its view of paradise across the river of death dazzles as never before in English. Um, I'm going to start by asking these two amazing poets a couple of questions, but the main thing is we want to hear from them, so we'll keep it brief. Okay, team. <laughs> this is quite a broad question, but um, gets to the heart, I think, of elegy as poetry. The, the great late lamented Seamus Heaney 
posited that all poems are elegies. And I think perhaps in that he might have meant that in a poem we are transcribing, as it were, in, in the illusion of real time, a moment. And of course that is over as soon as it's captured. And I wondered whether you agreed with him or you thought elegy must be much more about person-to-person -person human loss. Do you want to crack off on that one, Jane? Yes. Um, I think um, Heaney's absolutely right. I think what he's talking about there is that, that, that sense that Proust had is that you know, the, the moment just gone is, is the one you're um, trying to capture, and at the moment of trying to capture it, it it's already gone. Um, so there's something of that in elegy. I think one of the key aspects of elegy, which is probably... Um, one of the key aspects maybe of any art is that you are, you are still alive to make it. Yeah. So, um, so you're the elegist because you are still alive. It reminds me a little bit of that Frost poem, Out, Out. I don't know if any of you know it, about um, an accident, a boy um, who loses his hand in a piece of farm machinery. Um, and um, it's the moment at which that happens is a kind of slow-mo movement which Frost in the poem describes in terms of the beautiful landscape seconds before it happens. And he ends that poem. Um, I'll read uh, just so that I get this right. Um, Frost ends that poem about, about the terrible accident um, after which the boy dies. Um, and they since they were not the one dead, turned to their affairs. So mm. there is something about being, being the person alive. Um, you know, that is the elegist. Um, and, I, and I think it, was, it, it connects with Marion's idea that if, if death, or if the mortal moment is, is, is the kind of no moment, and that is what one says when, when, you know, when, when, when somebody dies, or you hear about the first thing the survivor says is, no, no, no. Yeah. And, you know, the poem is, yes. David Constantine talks about um, how uh, he wrote a wonderful essay called Common and Peculiar, if you, ever, if you can ever find that. He wrote about how um, every poem um, is an act of life in the, he says, in the face of, in the teeth of death, he says. And so I think that is true, uh, what Heaney's saying. There is a, there are, there is a kind of poetics, though, which is not about, um, which isn't, which is not about recollection, which is about, you know, Aristotle t talked about poetry as being the thing that might, not, not what has happened or what, what happens, but what might happen, uh, and that that is perhaps a different sort of poetics. But deep down, even that is still built on kind of our sense of memory, which is, which is what elegy might be, in many cases at base. Yeah. So. Successful consolation, memory. Yes. What's, what's I, I your don't know view? If, I don't know if... What, uh, the only thing I can add, I think, is this idea of um, a sort of claim on experience mm -hmm. and a proof that something actually happened. Yeah. Um, and that I think that's what poets can do and that's what elegy does as well. It's the idea that, um, uh, that th th there was an experience and it has gone, but... There needs to be a record of it somehow, mm. and um, and also that um, elegy is there to make us consider things that maybe are very that affect us all, and maybe we all want to think about or don't want to think about, but can make us consider them very closely. That idea that 
what was being discussed before about looking at something very, very closely. Mm. That's what Elodie can do. The mm. kind of almost morality of <coughs> looking at yes. an event and recording it and that somehow being enough. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because I, I find in both your poetries um, not simple consolation. And I wonder if the Elodie is as pure consolation belongs to a past era mm. where religion was more certain and that there's, there's doubt, there's, there's plenty of flowering, but also doubt. Mm. And I wonder if it's, if it's possible to have a total vision, say, that we find perhaps in medieval mm. dream vision these days. Uh, well, yeah. it's interesting you should, you should mention that in relation to the, the translation of the Pearl poem. So this mm. is a 14th century elegy um, for an infant uh, daughter, um, a girl child, um, which is ostensibly, um, it's a long narrative uh, poem imagining um, seeing the child, uh, it's a dream in which it's, it relates uh, quite strongly in many moments to what Alan was saying earlier, seeing the child across the water, talking to her. The poem sort of recreates her, so in a way that's, that's what Elegy does, doesn't it? it? It's not exactly, it's not a replay, but it's a kind of new life. Um, and ostensibly, it's an act of Christian consolation. The, the, um, the, the girl tells um, the bereaved father that she's happy in heaven here across the water in the celestial city. But actually, even then, the Pearl poet, the, the poem ends not with any really, any kind of um, um, uh, satisfactory sense of consolation mm -hmm. from that religious message, from that Christian message at all, in fact. And it, uh, the, the poem does what you're describing, I think, even then, which is an account of grief. It's an account of loss, which is, is an attempt to sort of retain the person, or the thing lost, the person lost. So, so who then do you think it's for? Well, I thought it was interesting, when you talked about the dictionary definition, because yeah. I went back to that as well, even though yeah. you know it's always good to go back to your dictionary yeah. definition, isn't it? And all those words like mournful and plaintiff, and, but I thought it was... In a way, I see the elegy as a much more positive thing. Yeah. You know, if, if someone was just to solely look at the dictionary version and then walk away and think, oh, that's what it is, just a very sad poem. <laughs> um, actually, for it to be um, almost a m much more uplifting thing, because, because at the end, I hope, out of some elegy, we gain clarity and understanding. Yeah. So it's not just about feeling very sad or telling you about this very sad thing. At the end of it, we may understand something better. Or see it more clearly. Yeah. And surely that can be a very uplifting thing about elegy. Shall we hear some poems? <laughs> Jane, let's yes. start with you. Thank you. Shall I take this water with me? Um, I'll, I'll begin with... Um, a poem written in memory of my, um, my younger brother, who died some years ago um, of HIV-AIDS. And, uh, and that's, what, uh, that's when I began writing. Marion was talking about that kind of, that, that's the sort of um, absolute simultaneity of a sense of disaster and of the preciousness of, of those times, before and after someone dies. Um, and this relates also, I think, to what Nick was talking about earlier, about span, sense of lifespan. The longest day. 
The stoneworks vault from the pool of the crypt in the tallest cathedral in Europe. The topmost stone in the bridge's fan, the waist of a diamond, a sea eagle's span, or you, at 15, poised on the high board, arms toward heaven in what might be prayer or praise to the sun and what you can dare before the slow curving dive to the cold at the foot of the cliff or pier, that day at the height of summer, exactly halfway. Um, Alan's story about um, stopping on the road as, as, as the storm, the two storms came towards him, reminded me of um, a, a, a gravestone, some of you may have seen it, in Reading Station graveyard. Which, uh, there's a graveyard right next to Reading Station if you walk through that way. And um, the memorial plaque reads, in memory of Henry West, who lost his life in a whirlwind at the Great Western Railway Station, Reading, March 1840, aged 24 years. Not expecting the future in so soon, he turned and looked for the swarm of bees, down the lines that had never met and never would now, it came, the hum of the barely discernible. Ribbons of flies in a sheep down a culvert, the crack of the ice plate under a boot, himself in the fog. The ironwork announced his name. Then the flat hand of the storm pushed him towards the gap. In the eye of the wind, he saw himself halted forever in the freezing cattle wagon of the third-class waiting room, stopped on the tabletop of a Siberian winter, surrounded by bears and the icy stairs of commuters, and round him, further and further, the Dopplers of a thousand, one-two-fives, the high-speed sleeper, and all the other sleepers going west. Um, I remember in the, in, the, um, in the early days after my brother's death, um, the, that very strong sense of preciousness that um, I, I, was, I was referring to before. And also, I remember very clearly how it seemed um, important to kind of hang on to small visual details. So, you know, the, the, the lines between bricks, the cracks in the pavement, somehow it seemed possible to take the next step if you just hung on to detail, uh, material detail of the world uh, in which you remained. Um, and one of the things I, I read um, not long after that was um, I read about this wonderful um, 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 phenomenon of the glass-making process, the Prince Rupert's Drop. So you may, some of you may have know, know about that. It's mentioned in um, Peter Carey's novel, Oscar and Lucinda. So it's a, it's a drop that falls by accident during the glass-making process, a little tear-shaped drop which uh, cools so rapidly that it, it leaves it in a state of kind of enormous tension. Prince Rupert used to take these into court and... Uh, have an elephant stand on the body of the, of the thing and then use a pair of pliers to nip at the neck and, and it would explode. So it's an extraordinary phenomenon. And um, 
And this is a poem called Prince Rupert's Drop, an elegy. It's brilliant. It's a tear you can stand a car on, the hard eye of a chandelier, ready to break down and cry like a baby, a rare birth cooled before its time. It's an ear of glass accidentally sewn in the coldest of water, that sheer drop, rock solid, except for the tail or neck, which will snap like sugar, kick like a mortar under the surefire touch of your fingernail. It's the pearl in a will-o'-the-wisp, the lantern asleep in the ice, the light of St. Elmo's fire in your eyes. It's the roulette burst of a necklace, the snap of bones in an icicle's finger, the snip of your pliers at the neck of my heart, the fingertip working the spot which says you are here until you are suddenly not. Um, thinking about this morning's conversation about the prospect of um, sustaining life for longer and longer so future generations might live longer and longer. Um, uh, I was considering what that might be like and perhaps um, that there may be those people who don't necessarily want to live forever. Um, so this is imagining... Imagining them. Prospect. Anyone who wanted to could leave, could gather, shivering on the south side of the river, labelled and provided for with socks and sweaters and a little cash. We walked across the water in our thousands and left behind forever all that was great. The monuments and sewers, cathedrals, theatres, mothers, lovers, brothers, as the flames licked at the city's raging heart. Faced with the prospect of living forever, we headed for the country lanes together, imagining the party de campagne among the clover and the stories each would tell the others on the way. We had left behind forever all that we had loved. It was a start. Um, I don't know if um, any of you are familiar with uh, Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. It's an extraordinary play um, <laughs> in which an, a, a lot of disastrous things happen very early on, um, especially to um, Hermione, the, the, the unjustly accused uh, queen accused of um, adultery by, by Leontes, the, uh, her husband. Um, she loses her little boy who dies of grief at the way, he's, he, uh, the way his mother's been treated. Um, the baby she's pregnant with is taken away from her. She's um, ordered to be t t taken away and killed. So this is all within a fairly short space of time, the play um, having begun. And at one point, Hermione says... Um, as if to say, you know, if they could see me now. She says, the emperor of Russia was my father. In other words, if, if he could have lived to see this moment. So this is uh, lost. Sleep is a Russian winter. 
where you are a girl again, lost, so it seems, like everything, and turned to stone. Only your foundling heart still stirs. Better, perhaps, to have been born a tree, to live on, summer after summer, leaves and branches, shifting like a child's hair, lifted by the wind. The wonder is, the waking world is so much like the dream. All's pale, blank silence, though across the sheet of snow you almost hear them call. Astonish us, they seem to say. Astonish us again today. Um, when I heard Alan talking about uh, near-death experiences and also the conversations we've had about immortality and, and legacy, the next generation, remembrance, um, I thought I, I definitely want to read this. I, I, I wrote a, or co-wrote a book with uh, the wonderful poet Leslie Saunders about an astonishing saint called Christina Mirabilis, Christina the Astonishing, a Belgian... Um, a Belgian country girl, illiterate, um, who's most famous for having died three times, well, four in all. Um, and at her first uh, funeral in the open coffin, uh, she was sort of 22 or so, um, she rose during the uh, mass and flew like a bird to the rafters in the church. Um, and uh, she said, well... I've been with God, and um, I had a conversation with God, and uh, he gave me the choice to go, uh, to go on to heaven, across, across the water, or to come back and save souls. And the rest of her very eventful life, miraculously eventful life, um, which included a lot of kind of self-harm and a lot of uh, bad behavior, really, bad mystical behavior, but a um, she spent the rest of her life um, gradually gaining admirers and became a great fount of wisdom. She could also speak Latin, even though she, she was illiterate. She was a remarkable figure. Uh, anyway, there's, there's a great cult um, of, of her relics, um, especially around Flanders and other places in Europe. So uh, just thinking about, about that Ideas, ideas of immortality. Relic. Who could stab a finger at the chest of her childhood and say that was the day it arrived in the village, the stuff with X-ray eyes, settling itself in the easy chair of her flesh, sacred sternum, solar plexus, her future, her stars. Worth more than gold, or gems, this radiation, spirit of the kneecap and the finger bone, swung like an amateur or steeple vein in the lap of the wind, only one place to go from here, walking on water, dancing through fire, the next step. The king of Portugal has her finger, wingtip grounded, shrine to the immortal possibilities of vertebrates. Inside the trunk or chest, bones glow in the dark, not wanted on voyage. The patellae of penitence, the ulna and radius 
of flight. These are her only children. And I'll, I'll finish um, by reading um, some extracts from that translation of, um, of the medieval pearl poem. Um, as I say, the poem is in the voice of um, a bereaved father and um, contains a lot of uh, the Christian, uh, Christian theology, theology of consolation, um, but also is very kind of strongly charged with, with the psychology of, of grief. This is, how, um, this is how it begins. One thing I know for certain, that she was peerless. Pearl, who would have added light to any prince's life, however bright with gold. None could touch the way she shone in any light. So smooth, so small, she was a jewel above all others. So pity me, the day I lost her in this garden where she fell beneath the grass into the earth. I stand bereft, struck to the heart with love and loss, my spotless pearl. I've gazed a hundred times at the place she left me, grieving for that gift which swept away all shadow, that face which was the antidote to sorrow. And though this watching sears my heart and winds the wires of sadness tighter, still the song this silence sings me is the sweetest I have heard. The countless quiet hours in which her pale face floats before me, mired in mud and soil, a perfect jewel spoiled, my spotless pearl. So I came to this very same spot in the green of an August garden, height and heart of summer, at Lammas time, when corn is cut with curving sides, and I saw that the little hill where she fell was a shaded place showered with spices, pink gillyflower, ginger and purple gromwell, powdered with peonies scattered like stars. But more to their loveliness, more than their loveliness to the eye, the sweetest fragrance seemed to float in the air there also. I knew beyond doubt that's where she lay, my pearl. Caught in the chilled grasp of grief, I stood in that place and clasped my hands, seized by the grip of longing and loss on my heart. Though reason told me to be still. I mourned for my poor imprisoned pearl with all the fury and force of a quarrel. The comfort of Christ called out to me, but still I wrestled in willful sorrow. The power and perfume of those flowers now filled my head and felled me, slipped me into sudden sleep on the spot where she lay beneath me my girl. Thank you.
Thank you, Jane. I think there'll be lots to talk about mm. around those Thank poems, you. but Rebecca, could we hear from you? You'll have to forgive me, I'm not feeling myself. I'm not allowed to fiddle with my hair and I've had to take my earrings out, so, um, because of the microphone. <clears throat> Her birth. On the wall, petunias, painted in Walberswick. I call to you, say, that's a good omen, that's a good sign, before buckling gripping the hospital bed. Walberswick is where I holidayed every childhood summer. It's where we announced the news. Sixteen months after the effort of her birth, we collect a faux walnut box from Jenkins and Sons. Inside, a clear sachet, weightless as dried herbs. We drive 281 miles for that cold, unstoppable wave to suck the sachet clean and I ask you, she is all right now, isn't she? She is all right. Ella was diagnosed with severe Epstein's anomaly at birth. And uh, my husband and I were told that she would die. And we didn't know when. And when she did die, and after her funeral, and, um, and after a brief stay in a very remote cottage in Yorkshire, trying to get away from reality. Uh, we came home and there were things that needed to be done. And some things were done swiftly, and some things not so quickly. And one of them was sorting out her clothes. And there are uh, several clothes poems in the book, because babies get so many sodding clothes. <laughs> and um, uh, all the years after her death, I am still finding her clothes a big problem. <laughs> And they are in um, plastic bags and under beds. And, uh, and, uh, but I have met many women who've lost children since the book was published, not just because of the book, but because I lived in Liverpool for a very long time and you can't go outside your front door without learning a life story and taking it home with you, and that's fine. Lovely, chatty, warm city. But I met women who also had lost children and they said the clothes were a big deal. Mining. I let socks dot the washing, coats grace the chair's arm. Her hospital bag, too hard to unpack, stayed slumped and ignored. But eventually there was a gathering, the limp outline of her size carried upstairs. It accumulated in the cot, a cold pit of pajamas, dresses, jeans, my heap of her, visible through bars. Insides of sleeves brushed with her cells, last flecks compacting in pastel matter until her father found me fretting at its edge, suggested it was time for the careful mining of her things. Our intention to sort, fold and label soon became a quick, unhappy shoving into grey plastic bags, the silent hoisting to an attic's dark. Her cot collapsed, I sobbed in that desolated space, while my desk was carried in, books and pens planted on its surface, her father's wise reclamation of the site. I kept a row of lilac-buttoned relics in my wardrobe, hand-knitted proof, something to haul my sorry lump of heart and make it blaze. 
of all the things I miss about Ella, and there are so many things I miss about her. One of them is holding her. She, um, she never crawled or walked, and it was never really established uh, whether that was to do with her condition or whether she just was never really in the mood. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, but, one of the, but she did get very, very tired in the latter months of her life, and her favourite position was there. She'd lean chest down onto my chest, and I went everywhere with her like, like that. So when I think about her and long for her, it is that mass of her that I crave. And this poem is about that trying to describe that. Muscovado sugar. I reach for the new kilogram bag, slick with plastic wrap, clutch its bulk in both hands. She weighed the same as eight of these at the time of her death. The mass her father carried to intensive care, flanked by medics gifting oxygen to her lips, and I walked behind, able to see her crown, her father's competent back, conscious of my arm, of someone's grip. I should scissor this bag open, ease crystal heaps onto scales, but I'm stuck in an imaginary stacking. Eight bags cradled elbow to elbow, her cardinal number stretching across my breast, carried up the stairs to lie down on the bed, pull the covers over us. Imagine her yielding, imagine her move. I'm quite interested in how people behave after death, really, after a bereavement. And um, uh, I liked to think, well, after several, several conversations with my psychologist, I liked to think that I could actually behave how I sodding well liked after Ella died, because this terrible thing had happened. It gave me permission to do what I like, behave how I like, you know, just, there, were, there was no, nothing could hinder me. Any response I wanted to give was allowed. And yet, actually, I found myself feeling much more reticent about things, feeling I had this very terrible, almost secret, um, didn't really know how to articulate it in public sometimes, wasn't sure what to say or how to behave. Um, and this is about watching somebody else and almost feeling quite envious of their response. Sunday papers. The feature I keep flicking past finally lures me in. Three mothers, each with a dead teenage son. One mother wears his clothes around the house. Astonished at her pluck, I'm flung back to those early months, scared to catch a dangling cuff and reawaken threads. Then, a friend's weepy visit in my sunlit porch, her sudden grab for the small pink coat. Freed from its stationary droop, she rammed her hand inside the sleeve and held it to her face. The gesture left me open-mouthed as she nosed my dead child's scent, so uncurbed, so unabashed about her loss. Um, I think the word euphemism has cropped up a bit today, and I actually don't have um, a, a problem saying my daughter died, Ella died, you know, the death of my daughter. But one day I, um, uh, I did use a particular euphemism. It kind of escaped 
from my mouth. And as soon as I heard myself say it, I was struck immediately by how inadequate it was. Lost. Walking with my baby in the park and slowing for someone I hadn't seen in years. I heard myself interrupting coos to say, you know I lost my first child, don't you? As if there were a possibility she might turn up again with my glove or best pen. That a sweep of the sofa might reward me her hand, then body, pulled from the gap between cushions. As if all I did was lose sight of her. That an anxious scan of sand could bring her into focus, squat and peering at shells. As if I could swear I had hold of her earlier. That a frantic spill of my bag would bear lip gloss, chewing gum, keys, and I'd be unable to explain, apologizing for my dreadful mistake. As if one day I could run from my house screaming found, lift her for the whole road to see, shouting, here she is, here she is, she is here. And because I can't get up and read six poems about Ella not being here and then just sit down again, I'm going to read, um, I'm going to finish with two about the birth of my second child, Molly. And the final section in the book is actually all about her, saturated with Ella, of course, but about Molly and about her arrival. And it says on the back, the joys and complexities that come with having another child. And yes, there are both. Um, so I'll just, uh, there are two poems, and um, one is about her birth, uh, Molly's birth, and she was born at 1.30 in the morning, which I highly recommend as a time to have a baby. And um, it, uh, it meant that my husband and I decided not to tell anyone that she'd been born, because we thought, why, why just wake everyone up? And it had been a big emotional deal, her arrival, and uh, we decided to keep her secret. And Molly was born in... Both my babies were born in Liverpool. I lived there for a long time, as I've said. <clears throat> and the women's hospital in Liverpool um, have really thought about it. So the room that you give birth in, if everything goes to plan, um, is, is, a, is a very civilised. It's kind of one up from a travel lodge. So you get in and there's, there's a stereo and nice curtains and pictures on the walls and an ensuite. And they bring you tea and china pot. And um, it's all very nice. I know I'm making childbirth sound like a breeze, but it, um, it is um, very nice. But uh, the rooms are all exactly the same. So when I went in during labour to have Molly, it was exactly the same room that I'd given birth to Ella in. And even though Ella's birth was straightforward, I felt a fraction traumatised by being back in this room. But this wonderful midwife sat me down and she said, no, no, you need to understand these rooms. And in them, they've got big Charles Rennie Macintosh prints. And... Um, she actually walked up to it. It was like something out of James Bond. She slid it to one side. And behind it is basically what you need if shit hits the fan. There's all the contraptions and oxygen and blah, blah, blah. And it was just so brilliant. She said, no, if women w walked in about to have a baby and saw all that straight away, they'd completely freak out. They've got enough to do. And, that's, and it was so brilliant because I just thought, Rebecca, you've got enough to do as well. Just get on with having this baby. Um, so, Welcome to Molly. For those secret hours, she was just ours. No one else knew about my breaths, deep, hard, long, to spill her, soft as mole into the light. Her crawl across my chest to drink untold, we let the world stay furled in sleep to hold her. 
As dawn swelled behind curtains, we thought of a name. It came in chorus, as if we had always known, and carried it under tongues for nine months, only now its round vowel released into the room. With your lips at her ear, you let syllables slide into flooded canals, named her over and over, while outside, Mersey gulls swooped in semi-dark, cawing their applause. I did a reading once, and unbeknownst to me, there was a doctor from the Liverpool women's in the audience, and he came up to me afterwards and said that from his office window, he could see across to a, another part of the building, the hospital, and there is a nest of seagulls there. So even the Scouse seagulls have their babies at the women's, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty wonderful. And the, the last poem in the book is Last Poem. Uh, it's called Last Poem. And it is my promise to Molly, because I think when something bad happens, uh, and after the death of a child, it's very, very hard to think nothing bad will happen again. But I look at her, and she's five now. She's having a really good time. And I owe it to her to look forward with her. Last poem. So extraordinary was your sister's short life. It's hard for me to see a future for you. I know it's there, your horizon of adulthood, reachable across a stretch of ordinary days, yet I can't believe my fortune to have a healthy child with all that waits, the bike, school, mild and curable diseases. So we potter through the weeks, and you relax your simian cling, take exploratory steps, language budding at your lips. I log the daily change, another day lived with every kiss goodnight, wake relieved by your murmurs at dawn. Come and hold my hand, little one. Stand beside me in your small shoes. Let's head for your undiscovered life. Your mother's ready now. Let's run. Thank you. <laughs> Can I just finish with um, one brief question to both of you? Um, it's something that shines out in the language both of you have chosen to write in, um, to write about extreme, chaotic, universal experiences. Is, is there, a, there a way that the language of poems can not solve or even heal or constrain those experiences, but somehow hold it or shape it? I mean, Rebecca, you talked about movingly in the poems and in yourself about not knowing how to behave. I mean, does a poem have something to say to that? Yeah, I, well, I think I can only speak personally for me, I suppose, as in I think I didn't know how to talk about it. In, in my normal life. <laughs> so so to, to write it down, yeah, gave, gave it some kind of shape and form. And also there were things I really wanted to say because I wanted people to understand them and to see them. And a bit like Marion's experience and what yeah. she was writing about, I think they need to be looked at and understood. The, the, the death of a child is a terribly difficult territory to navigate but it's going to make everybody feel worse if we don't talk about it. <laughs> and, um, and I believe that grief needs to be articulated in order to survive it. Yeah. I've said that a lot, and um, I don't think I, I, I would be surviving it if, if I wasn't talking about it in some 
way. And I think, um, yeah, so the, 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 the poems have, have done that. <laughs> so the, the elegy has that double role of reflecting back to the, the writer, the speaker. Yes. Some form, some shape, as well as giving memoriam Yes. saying this has been, this has happened, yes. this is real. Yeah, and, and to sort of want to say to people, this is exactly what it is like, mm. yeah. I think. This is, um, and to pull that person in really, really close. And you don't have to talk to me about it, but you can look in there and see that's exactly mm. what it's like. Yeah. Mm. And Jane, in, in your poems, I noticed, I, th I think for, the, for you and for the Pearl poet, finding... <laughs> a really resonant image for mm. something, like the, the, the face in the Pearl poem, the face of the child, mm. which kind of swims through that yes. section you read. Yes. Or in Prince Rupert's drop, that wonderful image of the fragility mm. and strength mm. of the drop standing for yes. something human. Yes. I mean, I, I, I find oh, that there's something about... The more, I just remember that the more I stared at this impossible thing, the less it would give it. So, so there's something very fugitive about the reality of what had happened. Um, and I didn't write until I wrote these, these poems about my brother. I, I, I wasn't a poet, I didn't write. So writing was what happened. And it, and it was very transformative. So it's, you know... It, it's like looking to what, you know, when you try and look at the Pleiades or you look at distant constellations, the only way, you see them more strongly if you look to one side and they become brighter in your, to one side. And there's something um, about the transformative power of imagery which, uh, it, you know, which, which has the capacity to hold stuff that is somehow or other fugitive. Well, for me, when looked at absolutely straight on, I couldn't see it. I couldn't work out what it was. So, so that's, um, that's, that's how it was for me. The other thing is that I think when you write um, in these situations of personal, a very you know, close personal loss... You're, you're, it's partly an address to the lost person, even mm -hmm. if technically it's not. And at the same time, you are talking to yourself. Um, so um, uh, Heaney, for instance, in his poem Digging, and Simon Armitage has, has done this as well, has written sort of anticipatory um, elegies. So elegies written before imagining the fa their father, in, in each case has died, and I, those are really interesting because, in a way, that also kind of puts its finger at the heart of what elegy is about for the writer, which is placing oneself in relation to, m trying to measure and value and hold on to the preciousness of your own relation to the lost, or, or imagining yourself in relation to them. So in, in the, the, the first session of the morning, we were reminded that you know, immortality, yes. in a way, is not good for us in terms of natural selection, but perhaps somehow poetry makes things continue, yes. despite that. Yes. Um, I, I don't know how linked this could be now, but I was just thinking about. I was also thinking about elegy being part of the mourning process, and yes. and um, I heard the. Um, uh, novelist, I don't know his work, but Teju Cole talked mm -hmm. this week on the radio about 
uh, about mourning and the process of mourning, and he said how important it is to mourn properly. He was actually talking about mm. New York collectively, the city, how it, how it behaved after 9-11, and he said how he never thought it mourned properly. It was in such a rush to get past its past and go on into the future. Mm. And I think... Um, and he said that the idea of if you don't mourn properly, you are left with ghosts. And, what, and I loved what he said, um, unfinished psychological business. <laughs> and I just thought, my God, we all have a lot of unfinished yeah, psychological business. And, um, and, and that idea of, of uh, when a terrible thing happens, not want, you know, that yes, maybe you are maybe wanting to, or some people out there want to get past it and into the future. But actually, what Elegy can do is help us find those ghosts um, uh, bring them to the fore a bit or write mm. for them yeah. or explain who they yeah. were, deal with those ghosts and then maybe therefore deal with that, that psychological business. Brilliant. Shall we finish with the unfinished psychological <laughs> yes. business? And can you join me in giving gigantic thanks to the wonderful <laughs> Rebecca Goss and Jane Draycott? Thank you.